Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 86, Space Shuttle Flight 19, STS-51F, Limits to Inhibit. Last time, we talked about STS-51G, a very 80s space shuttle flight. We saw commsats, we saw lasers, we saw science experiments, and we saw some interesting payload specialists. And actually, on that note, I have a correction to make. In the STS-51G episode, I claimed that payload specialist 2, Sultan bin Salman, was the youngest person to fly in space. This, of course, is ridiculous. Sultan was only a few days short of his 29th birthday, which is pretty young for an astronaut, but what I actually intended to say was that he was the youngest person to fly on the space shuttle. It turns out I forgot to check in with our comrades in the east, Russia, who flew a number of people who were younger. For the record, the youngest person in space, German Titov who flew in Vostok 2 at the tender age of 25 years old, way back in 1961. Since we're already sort of on the topic of the Russian space program, I wanted to mention that I know that some of you are hoping that I'll do some sort of supplemental about activities on that side of the Iron Curtain. Just to set expectations, I'll tell you now that I am planning on talking about Mir when a certain white orbital space plane comes to visit, but don't get your hopes up for a detailed look at their early space program or lunar landing attempts. The truth is that I went into this show already knowing a fair amount about NASA, and it still takes a lot of effort to research each episode. I'd be going into the Russian side essentially blind, and the records over there are a lot more sparse and a lot less authoritative. Sometimes even members of the same crew can't agree on the basic facts about what happened. I'm looking at you, Soyuz 5. So, sorry, it's not going to happen. That said, if someone else were to make a podcast called The Cosmos Above Us, I'd certainly be an early subscriber. For today's episode, we'll be talking about STS-51F, Space Lab 2. Wait, weren't we just talking about Space Lab 3 like two episodes ago? Yes, Space Lab is already back on the launch manifest. And if you're curious why Space Lab missions flew in a 1-3-2 order, it's because there was a bit of a delay associated with an important new component of Space Lab, the instrument pointing system. We've seen a number of experiments flown in the shuttle payload bay that required the orbiter to point in a specific direction. The orbiter is a pretty impressive machine, so it does an okay job at this, able to keep a sensor pointed to within 0.1 degrees of where it's supposed to. But for some applications, that's just not good enough. So flying on this mission was the instrument pointing system, a three-axis gimbal mechanism that could, well, point instruments. But really, really accurately. With up to 2,000 kilograms of instruments attached, the IPS could point with an accuracy of two arc seconds, or 0.00055 degrees. That's 182 times better, so it's quite an improvement. The IPS wasn't quite ready, and was one of the key components for this flight, so Space Lab 2 and 3 were swapped to keep things moving. This flight's experiments, which we'll talk about in a bit, were sort of an icing on the scientific cake. And that's because Space Lab was flying in a new configuration, and this was, in fact, a verification test flight of the new equipment. If valuable scientific data could be collected as part of this test, then all the better. Up until this point, Space Lab had made use of a large, pressurized space station-like module that dominated the payload bay. Crew members would travel down a 12-meter tunnel from the orbiter's middeck to the pressurized laboratory where they could get to work. 
But Space Lab was modular, with the idea being that modules could be easily swapped out to suit the mission at hand. So for this mission, instead of a pressurized laboratory, there were three unpressurized pallets, each measuring 3 meters long and 4 meters wide, close to the width of the payload bay. And each of these pallets were brimming with various scientific sensors. Now you may be wondering why a second verification flight was necessary. Didn't we do this on Space Lab 1? Well, you're right, but we've got a whole bunch of new support equipment on this flight that needs to go through a shakedown. Equipment like the instrument pointing system and the igloo. An important task on Space Lab missions is controlling the experiments, recording the data, and transmitting that data down to the ground. On Space Lab 1 and 3, that equipment was housed in the pressurized laboratory. For Space Lab 2, that responsibility falls on the igloo. Somewhat bizarrely, this thing actually seems to be called the Igloo. It's not some eye-roll-inducing acronym for a complicated technical name. At least, not one I could find. The Igloo is a smallish cylinder that contains 2.2 cubic meters of pressurized volume, the equipment required to run the experiments on the unpressurized pallets. Inside, electronic equipment would enjoy nice, dry, sea-level pressure air. That equipment included three computers, power control and distribution devices, amplifiers, multiplexers, coolant loops, you get the idea. Although I did wonder about the intriguingly named emergency box, which was not elaborated upon. Since there was nowhere in the payload bay for the crew to go, they would stay in the crew cabin, operating the experiments by using control panels at the aft of the flight deck. From there, they could look out the windows into the payload bay and make sure everything was going as expected. Some minor modifications were required to the panels back there to allow for control of Space Lab, but nothing crazy. So between the new pallets, new control panels, igloo, and presumably a whole lot of wiring to communicate with all this stuff, there was plenty of reason to fly another verification test. So let's fly it! Commanding the flight was Gordon Fullerton. We know Fullerton from his role as pilot on the approach and landing tests, flying Enterprise with Fred Hayes, as well as flying as pilot on STS-3. This is his final flight. Flying shotgun was Roy Bridges. Roy Bridges was born on July 19, 1943 in Atlanta, Georgia. Bridges graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy and Purdue University, where he picked up a master's in astronautics. With the Air Force, he flew 226 combat missions over Vietnam in the F-100 fighter jet. After the near-obligatory pass through Edwards and a few more roles with the Air Force, including some pretty high-level stuff in Washington, D.C., he joined NASA in 1980. From what I can tell, he seems to be one of several astronauts who moved into managerial roles after the Challenger accident, since while this was his only flight, he stayed with NASA until 2005, serving as director of both the Kennedy Space Center and Langley Research Center. Mission Specialist 1 was Carl Hennies. Carl Hennies was born on October 17, 1926, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He earned a bachelor's in mathematics and a master's in astronomy from the University of Virginia, and then a PhD in astronomy from the University of Michigan. After his extensive education, and as part of his PhD, he conducted spectroscopic surveys of stars and nebulae, documenting emission lines which indicate the chemical makeup of objects, even hundreds of light years away. He also studied celestial objects a little closer to home, leading a program of 12 ground stations to photograph satellites. 
He joined NASA as one of the scientist astronauts in 1967, giving Don Lind a run for his money for longest wait for his first flight. 17 years, 9 months, and 25 days. While waiting for his flight, he continued his astronomical research along with various astronaut support roles. It's possible Hennies would have flown again, but he died of high-altitude pulmonary edema while attempting to climb Mount Everest in 1993, so this is his only flight. Mission Specialist 2 was our good friend Story Musgrave, who on this second flight is only one-third of the way through his astronaut career. Mission Specialist 3 was Tony England. Anthony England was born on May 15, 1942 in Indianapolis, Indiana, but considers West Fargo, North Dakota to be his hometown. He earned a bachelor's and master's in geology from MIT, and then stuck around to earn a PhD in geophysics, also from MIT. He joined NASA as a scientist astronaut in 1967 alongside Carl Hennies, so I'm sure he was also more than ready to finally fly. During his time at NASA, he helped work on a team developing radar for Apollo 17 to look beneath the lunar surface and led expeditions in Antarctica. He left NASA for seven years to work for the U.S. Geological Survey, but returned in 1979 and became a mission specialist. This is his only flight. Moving on to the payload specialists, payload specialist one was Lauren Acton. Lauren Acton was born on March 7, 1936 in Lewiston, Montana. In the interest of time, I think the payload specialists are going to start getting a little less attention, so I'll just say, before this flight, he was the senior staff scientist with the Space Sciences Laboratory in the Lockheed Martin Palo Alto Research Laboratory in California. He spent his career studying the sun, including a PhD in astrogeophysics. And this is his only flight. And last but not least, payload specialist 2, John David Bartow. John David Bartow was born on November 17, 1944, in Abington, Pennsylvania. His education focused on physics, and his role on this flight would be working on the solar experiments along with Acton. And while this was his only flight, he would remain with NASA for many years, working on research capability, hardware, and plans for the ISS. On July 12, 1985, Challenger was all fueled up, the crew were driven to the pad, and everything was on track for an on-time liftoff. One by one, the main engines ignited, and then shut down. There had been a pad abort with 4.2 seconds to launch. We haven't seen a pad abort since STS-41D, so it's been a while. Pad aborts are always a little scary, since so much energy is flowing and then suddenly stopped. But when the computer is spooked by something, the safer option is to stay firmly on the ground. The problem was soon traced to a coolant valve issue in engine number 2. The valve was a little slow, and the computer decided that it would be safer to shut everything down, so no one was going to space today. 17 days later, however, everything was ready to go for realsies. Well, almost. A further delay of 1 hour and 37 minutes was incurred due to a problem with the backup flight system. It sounds like they basically just rebooted the computers, always a good idea, and realigned the IMUs, and they were ready to go. At 5 p.m. local time, the main engines ignited again, the SRBs kicked in, and Challenger lifted off for the eighth time. Just real quick, and definitely not for any ominous reasons, let's do a quick overview of the Space Shuttle main engine. The Rocketdyne RS-25 engine, aka SSME, did what all liquid-fueled rocket engines do. It took fuel and oxidizer, mixed them together, burned them, and directed the exhaust through a nozzle to generate thrust. 
But since its designers wanted the RS-25 to be super duper efficient, it had some pretty elaborate methods for doing that. The external tank stores propellant at around 34 pounds per square inch of pressure. That's not nothing, but it's also not nearly enough to feed three engines burning propellant as fast as they do. The pressure needs to be a lot higher. But you can't make too big of a jump all at once, or you run into a lot of technical problems like cavitation. So for both the fuel and the oxygen, there are low-pressure turbo pumps and high-pressure turbo pumps. The propellant goes from the tank through the low-pressure pumps, which increases the pressure, into the high-pressure pumps, which increases the pressure even further, and from there into the combustion chamber, where it is burned and expelled out the nozzle. On paper, it's just a few components, with some nice clean lines connecting them. In reality, well, you actually have to build this thing. So all over the place, there's pipes, wires, sensors, ducts, manifolds, you name it. And as Challenger made its way to orbit, somewhere in this maze, a vanishingly thin wire of platinum was starting to break. Ascent was proceeding normally until 5 minutes and 43 seconds into the flight, when the center engine shut down almost 3 minutes early, and Commander Gordon Fullerton radioed down, Houston, we show the center engine thermal. During the next four seconds, Booster Officer Jenny Howard confirmed that the center engine was down, and Flight Dynamics Officer Brian Perry called out, Flight Fido, abort ATO, and Capcom passed the message along. The space shuttle had just experienced its first, and only, ascent abort. The engine itself was actually fine, but a temperature sensor on the high-pressure fuel turbo pump had failed several minutes earlier, leaving the engine with no redundancy on this sensor. And then at 5 minutes and 43 seconds, the second sensor failed. The computer, now deprived of any information about the temperature of the turbo pump, shut down the engine rather than operate it in the blind. At this point in the ascent, Challenger was about 100 kilometers up, about 500 kilometers downrange, and traveling at about 3.3 kilometers per second. It had too much energy to return to the launch site, so an RTLS abort was out. A transoceanic abort landing, tall, or once around abort, were both possible, but far better would be to limp into a lower orbit than what was originally planned. By aborting to orbit, a modified version of the mission would still be possible, and, perhaps more importantly, the crew and mission controllers would be in a stable situation, where they could take the time to figure out what to do next. As much as they've trained for the other abort options, it's always best to take the path that gives you the most time to think it through. So, Commander Gordon Fullerton reached forward, turned the abort mode dial from off to ATO, and confirmed the action, using the push button to the dial's right. During the normally 8.5 minute ride to orbit, each of the various abort modes had windows where they were available. In this case, the failure happened during a 45 second period where abort to orbit was possible, but Challenger would have to start dumping Ohm's fuel. Since the fuel was hypergolic, dumping it really meant burning it, which added a small amount of thrust, but really the goal was to reduce Challenger's mass, giving the remaining SSMEs less to push into orbit. In this case, 4,400 pounds of propellant were burned off through the Ohm's engines. The flight computer also took other measures to push the orbit as high as possible, stuff like accepting the orbital plane the vehicle was already in rather than trying to make slight adjustments on the fly. Inclination changes use a lot of energy. A minute and 17 seconds after the center engine shutdown, Challenger passed into a new abort window, single engine tau, 
meaning that even if another engine shut down, the shuttle would still be able to land at its transatlantic abort site, Zaragoza, Spain. At this point, the booster officer, via Capcom, requested that the crew set the main engine limits to enable, which is not usually how this story is told. It turns out that immediately after the center engine shutdown, the onboard computer itself set the main engine limits to inhibit, so that if there was a sensor problem, the two other engines wouldn't shut down as well. This was left on until Challenger hit single-engine TAL capability, but now that Mission Control was certain that Challenger could safely make it to a runway even if another engine dropped, they wanted to be a little more conservative and re-enable the engine limits. Around 8 minutes into the flight, close to the time when ascent would normally be complete, the calculus changed again. At this point, Challenger can make it to Zaragoza, even on one engine. But the external tank would not be disposed of safely. And while I'm sure a lot of countries are fans of the space shuttle, they probably would not take too kindly to a 150-foot-long fuel tank crashing out of the sky on their territory. The only safe option now was to continue on to orbit. That's why it was extra alarming when a few seconds later the booster officer noticed that a sensor had failed on engine 3. Specifically, a temperature sensor on engine 3's high-pressure fuel turbo pump the exact same issue that had brought down engine 2. If the second sensor failed, the computer, which had been returned to limits enable mode, would shut the engine down. The crew would be forced to execute a hairy abort that had never been attempted, and the external tank would land... somewhere. But something didn't seem right. She didn't think that it was likely that both of these engines actually had a problem. It was more likely that something was wrong with the sensors themselves. She called out, Flight limits to inhibit. Capcom faithfully passed on the instruction, and Commander Fullerton punched it in. From now until Miko, it would be up to Jenny Howard and her team to manually monitor the engine, ensure that it was healthy, and if not, call for a manual shutdown. Howard and her team were the world's experts in doing, well, this exact thing, but it was still a calculated risk. But the flight director trusted the team to do the right thing, and the crew trusted Mission Control to do the right thing, so the limits were set to inhibit. Nine minutes and 41 seconds after lifting off, over a minute longer than a normal ascent, Challenger finally reached Miko and the remaining engine shut down. Thanks to the quick thinking and extreme preparation of mission control and the endless training of the crew, Challenger was safely in orbit and was only 33 meters per second, or 75 miles per hour, short of its intended velocity. That meant that the mission was still possible, albeit in a lower orbit than intended. After a few ohms burns, Challenger ended up in an orbit of 315 kilometers in altitude, instead of the original plan of 390 kilometers. Due to the lower orbit, sunsets and sunrises, calm windows with ground stations and Tedris, and other orbital events would all come at significantly different times than originally planned, so the mission schedule would have to be quickly reworked. But a slightly frazzled mission schedule team was far preferable to coming home early and having to replan the entire mission. And now that the mission was continuing, it was time to get to work. In order to make the most of their time on orbit, experiments would be run around the clock. The crew split into two teams. For the red team, pilot Bridges, mission specialist Hennies, and payload specialist Acton. For the blue team, mission specialist Musgrave, Mission Specialist England, and Payload Specialist Bartow. Commander Fullerton split himself between shifts to provide some continuity. 
Crammed into the payload bay were 11 different experiments. We don't have time, and frankly I don't have the expertise, to really get into a lot of detail about these, but I can at least tell you what a few of them were called. On pallet 1, the most forward, we've got the Coronal Helium Abundance Space Lab Experiment, the High Resolution Telescope and Spectrograph, and a few other things. On pallet 2, the Vehicle Charging and Potential Experiment, and the X-Ray Telescope. And on pallet 3, the Plasma Diagnostics Package, Infrared Telescope, and Superfluid Helium Experiment. And in the way back on its own special support was the Cosmic Ray Nuclei Experiment. The Cosmic Ray Nuclei Experiment surely had a whole team of experts working on it for years before this flight, so I feel a little bad that all I have to say about it is that it looks way more like an igloo than the igloo does. If you've been paying far too close attention, two experiments in that list may have sounded familiar to you. The Plasma Diagnostics Package and the Vehicle Charging and Potential Experiment, which I'm going to call PDP and VCAP from now on. PDP and VCAP actually flew way back on STS-3, which also had Gordon Fullerton on board. In fact, between the return of Fullerton and these two experiments, and the shakedown nature of the mission, this flight sort of feels like STS-3.5. The PDP's job was to study the plasma environment around the orbiter, and VCAP sort of complemented it by emitting electron beams and then recording the effects on its own plasma sensors. Since plasma is ionized gas and therefore charged, you can learn more about it by releasing electrons into it and seeing how everything behaves. When these experiments flew previously, they remained in the payload bay or on the end of the remote manipulator system. But for this flight, it was time to take the next step. On flight day 4, PDP was grappled by the RMS, raised up out of the payload bay, and gently released. For the next six hours, PDP would be its own free-flying spacecraft. But it wouldn't have a chance to get too lonely. That's because after releasing PDP, Challenger began an elaborate series of maneuvers around the little probe, giving it a chance to study the plasma environment even further away from the orbiter, in this case between 500 and 1,000 feet. While it was out there, VCAP, which remained in the payload bay, sent out its electron beam so PDP could see how it was affected by the environment around the orbiter. Originally, the plan was to swoop around PDP for three orbits, but since they were a little low on fuel due to their dramatic arrival on orbit, the crew called it a day after only two laps around PDP. They scooted back in along PDP's velocity vector, reached out with the RMS, and grappled it with no problems. These little free-flying experiments are super cool, because they provide a lot of the benefit of having a dedicated spacecraft but for far less hassle. Of course, they can't operate for nearly as long, but depending on what sort of data you're after, that might not be a problem. So they're a handy tool to have available. On the previous mission, we saw the influence of the Cold War on the shuttle program. Well, we did once the orbiter got pointed in the right direction. On this mission, we'll see the influence of a different decades-long global struggle. The Cola War. When the crew wasn't putting Space Lab through its paces and gathering science data, they could take a moment, relax, and enjoy a weightless beverage. Usually that meant water or a powder mixed with water, but wouldn't it be great to have some more options? That's why on this flight, there was the Carbonated Beverage Dispenser Evaluation. As usual with NASA experiments, this is basically what it sounded like. Unlike water, carbonated beverages need to be stored in a pressurized container, 
and in zero gravity, care needs to be taken to keep the liquid and the carbon dioxide mixed, and to not spray it all over the place. So it's not nearly as simple as a plastic bag that astronauts can just sip out of. In this case, the carbonated beverage was cola, and in the interest of fairness, and not granting an advertising edge, both Coke and Pepsi were available. I wish I could tell you more about this experiment, but I honestly couldn't find anything about it. It's like it never existed. I did manage to find a tangential reference in a document titled Space Shuttle Food System Summary, 1981-1986. In between cake, pumpkin and carrot sticks, it lists that eight carbonated beverages were flown. Other than that, a few photos and two lines in the press kit, which just listed as being on board, are the only proof I came across that this thing is even real. But I can tell you I've heard astronauts state that burping is almost impossible in space, at least without getting more than you bargained for. And since there was no fridge on board, I can't imagine it was an entirely pleasant experience. For what it's worth, the Wikipedia article for this mission doesn't cite where this came from, but it says that the cola fizzed excessively in microgravity. So it sounds like a bad time all around. But don't worry, they'll try it again on a later flight, for some reason, and we'll hopefully get some more details. After a productive seven days in space, one more day was tacked on for good measure to gather even more science data. But eventually, it was time to come home. Seven days, 22 hours, 45 minutes, and 26 seconds after lifting off, the shuttle's only mission to lose a main engine in flight came to a successful conclusion. The flight further expanded the types of missions that the shuttle was capable of and demonstrated the value of the countless hours of training and practice on the part of both the crew and the ground. What could have been a catastrophe ended up being just another day on the job. Next time, we're back on Space Shuttle Discovery. We've got some stuff to deploy, our first spacewalks in a while, and an old score to settle. It's time to finally swat that fly. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.